Good evening. Biden calls out American evil, says we will win. A tearful memorial brings together black electeds in New York. Were Lebanon's elections a farce? A Starbucks union on Long Island and a guide to post-Roe America. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, May 17th, 2022. New York City has moved from a medium COVID-19 alert level to a high alert level amid a rise in cases, as according to Health Commissioner Dr. Ashwin Vasan announcing it this morning. While officials haven't imposed any new mandates, the city is urging New Yorkers to wear high-quality masks in public indoor settings and crowded outdoor spaces. And that's in quotes. A health department press release says New Yorkers should consider avoiding higher-risk activities, such as crowded indoor gatherings, and any gatherings should be limited to small numbers. As of today, the five boroughs had a 9.09% seven-day average positivity rate, with hospitalizations and confirmed deaths at stable levels and stable again is in quotes mayor eric adams today said school uh, yesterday said schools libraries and other city sites would distribute an additional 16.5 million covid-19 testing kits and 1 million masks in an effort to mitigate the recent rise in cases the mayor however added that officials were not at the point of mandating masks and in national news all too close to home, though. President Joe Biden condemned white supremacists, the media, the Internet and politics for spreading racist conspiracy theories as he mourned the killing of 10 black people in Buffalo. In America, evil will not win, I promise you. Hate will not prevail. And white supremacy will not have the last word. For the evil did come to Buffalo. Has come to all too many places. Manifest in gunmen who massacred innocent people in the name of hateful and perverse ideology rooted in fear and racism. President Biden today, Peyton Gendron, an 18-year-old white teenager, is accused of opening fire with a semi-automatic rifle in a predominantly African-American neighborhood in Buffalo. Authorities say he carried out an act of racially motivated violent extremism on Saturday at the Topps Friendly Market when he shot 13 people. Gendron has been jailed without bail on a charge of first-degree murder. He pleaded not guilty. Investigators are looking at the Gendron's online postings, including a 180-page manifesto he's believed to have authored outlining the Great Replacement Conspiracy Theory, falsely claiming white people are intentionally being replaced by minorities through immigration in the United States and elsewhere. Biden has asked Congress to require new background checks for gun buyers and ban military-style assault weapons and large-capacity ammunition magazines, but Democrats who largely support gun safety measures don't have enough votes to pass them. But that didn't stop New York Representative Hakeem Jeffries from denouncing the GOP for tacit and not so tacit support of the conspiracy theory. We're waiting for a single House Republican leader to denounce replacement theory. The theory that led to the massacre in Buffalo, New York. And hopefully we'll see some decency from them today and throughout the week. A top FBI official told Congress in November that the Bureau was conducting around 2,700 investigations related to domestic violent extremism, and the Department of Justice said in January it was creating a new unit to counter domestic terrorism. Meanwhile, 
New information is coming out that officials had plenty of warning that Peyton Gendron was a potential time bomb and possibly capable of deadly violence. Gendron was a senior at Susquehanna Valley High School outside Binghamton, New York, last spring when he was asked about his plans after graduation. According to law enforcement sources, he answered he wanted to commit a murder-suicide. State police were summoned to investigate and took Gendron, then 17, into custody on June 8th under a state mental health law. He had a psychiatric evaluation in a hospital but was released within a couple of days. In related news, a vigil was held yesterday, attended by New Yorkers, elected officials, and faith leaders who mourned the Buffalo dead. Gays Against Guns, a group founded after the Pulse nightclub shooting that fights restricted gun laws, conducted a funeral-like possession, donning all white and strapping their faces, strapping the faces of the victims to their chests. The group solemnly marched to Times Square. Later that evening, Mayor Eric Adams hosted a remembrance service at Harlem's Bethel Gospel Assembly Destiny Worship Pavilion. Attorney General Letitia James, Public Advocate Jamani Williams, and Mayor Eric Adams were among the ecumenical group of speakers. Cable news I can't hide now that enabled these views to fester and ignite and social media that promoted these behavioral algorithms. Algorithms that advance this crazy theory, a racist theory known as replacement theory that we were seeking to replace white people. That the strength of our diversity was intended to replace white people. It's a sick and demented Theory. We look to you now. You said if we look to the hills, from which come a help. Our help comes from you, Jesus. So we look to you, God. Your throne. Compounded with this is a country's demonic obsession with guns. Elsie Stefanik, Tucker Carlson. Fox News, the New York Post, Donald Trump, everybody who's been pushing this. You know, when we say that an 18-year-old Michael Brown, who was unarmed, is a man, but a person who shot and killed 10 people is just a teenager. How do you don't know you can? How do you don't know you can? I must protect innocent people of this city. And I'm not going to apologize for doing that. I must make sure that this baby can't continue to lose their lives in this city. And yes, we're going to sit in the courtroom and we're going to call for justice in Buffalo. We're going to make sure this terrorist is taken care of. But I, I must make sure that young Kiaras on Buffalo Avenue in Brooklyn can get to school safely. That's my obligation. That's my responsibility. One by one, Mayor Adams placed the roses into a vase before to offering his condolences and doubling down on his pledge to combat gun violence. Adams spoke of 11-year-old Kiara Tay 
who was tragically shot and killed in the Bronx that evening as an example of why gun crime prevention is so desperately needed. And the problem of white supremacy is not limited to the United States. Many nations of elected leaders with similar anti-immigrant politics to Trump and many GOP leaders. Greece had its own experience with the far-right dictatorship in the 1970s. Today, Greece's prime minister, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, addressed a joint meeting of Congress prior to a reception for the leader and his spouse later at the White House. The Hellenic Republic's leader firmly supported Ukraine against Russia, winning praise from Biden, but also addressed the threat to democracy a link between Greece and the founders of America. Everywhere in the world, in the United States, in Greece, in Europe, social media is polarizing public debate. It is transforming the public sphere into a modern day version of the Tower of Babel, where we speak different languages and we only listen to those who share the same views with us. There are three major forces. And that is why making our democracies more resilient is such an important priority. Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis of the Hellenic Republic. Reportedly, in another country not too far from Greece, actually, a few hundred miles away, voters in Lebanon over the weekend deprived the leading coalition centered around Hezbollah and its political allies of a parliamentary majority, electing about a dozen new independent candidates. And that's all according to official results released today. But a candidate who says her reformist party missed winning a seat in parliament by only 70 votes in a suspicious night of vote counting, Rania Misri of the Citizen and State Party, says the election will do nothing to solve Lebanon's deep economic and social divides. She reports to WBAI from Beirut. The voter turnout in this election was lower than the voter turnout four years ago. So four years ago, the voter turnout was around 50 percent. At this time, it was around 41 percent. And in some of the poorest area in the country, we actually had an increase, you know, an increase, a decreased voter turnout of 15 percent less than how it was four years ago. So this alone says a lot about the mood of the country, that there is an increased sense of despair. There is also an increased sense of isolation from this so-called political process. We also need to remember that over the past four years, the currency in Lebanon has lost 90 percent of its value. So there is an, a very real cost for people to travel to the voting booths and participate in the election process. For some individuals, it would cost them around a third of their monthly salary to simply make that trek to the voting booth. It's important for your viewers in the United States to understand that, like in the United States, money plays a critical role in um, the elections in Lebanon. So, for example, if you want to get on television, on any television station, it costs approximately $1,000 a minute to get on the air on television. It also costs money to get on the radio. So therefore we can just imagine the amount of money of millions and millions and millions of US dollars that were thrown into just the media networks by the political parties and the individuals seeking election or re-election. There was also a lot of foreign money that was thrown into this election, primarily by Saudi Arabia that was supporting a right-wing Christian party called the Lebanese Forces. The Lebanese Forces spent just $15 million just on billboards alone. And all of this is, again, from Saudi Arabia. People were getting paid to vote a particular way. That figure reached $500 a vote. 
and extremely high figures to bribe people to vote a particular way. There was also money being spent on election monitors. So those who would be monitoring the election also got paid a great deal. All of this would lead to a question as, you know, how fair were these elections and how representative are they of people's real political inclinations? Tell me about your party and how they did. My party is a small party that was founded six years ago. We're the only Lebanese party in Lebanon's history to run in all the 15 districts of the country and to run on a very clear platform of, of wanting to hold the bankers personally responsible for the financial bankruptcy and wanting to build universal health care and strengthen our free education and build public transportation in the country. We got almost 4% of the votes nationwide. The larger so-called opposition, and I say so-called opposition because many of them are actually funded by the bankers, so they're not really opposition, they got approximately 10% of the votes, and they have approximately 12 new people in parliament representing this so-called opposition. One of our candidates almost got to parliament, but he lost by 70 votes, 7-0 votes. <laughs> it took 48 hours to count the votes for his seat, and he lost by uh, 70 votes. Hezbollah, I've heard, took a hit in this election. Hezbollah lost a few seats in parliament. Their so-called Christian allies maintained their seats in parliament. When it comes to domestic policies, they're all aligned with the bankers. And they're all against universal health care. And they all have zero decent economic plan to get this country out of the bankruptcy and to protect what remains of our public assets. When will I be able to interview you as a member of the Lebanese parliament? <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? We never seek election in order to reach Parliament. We seek election in order to clarify our political positions. If I were to run with the objective of just getting into Parliament, then I will compromise my political principles and align myself with whomever just to get to Parliament. No, we run a very ethical political platform. The bigger question is what will happen to the state of the economy in Lebanon? What will happen to the society in Lebanon in the next four years? And that's Rania Misri of the Citizens and State Party reporting from Beirut, Lebanon. The election was the first held since a 2019 nationwide uprising against a political elite widely seen as corrupt and ineffective. The mass protests were sparked by the start of one of the world's economic depressions the world has seen in more than 150 years. An estimated 80% of Lebanon's population now live in poverty, and there have been severe shortages of food, fuel, and medicines. The country's problems have been compounded by the coronavirus pandemic and a devastating explosion at Beirut's port in 2020, which killed more than 200 people. The investigation into who was responsible has stalled repeatedly as politicians failed to give evidence. Back here in Washington, key lawmakers warned at a White House hearing on Tuesday that unidentified aerial phenomenon, popularly known as UFOs, must be investigated and taken seriously as a potential threat to national security. The event marked the first congressional public hearings on UFOs in decades, a high-profile moment for a controversial topic that's long been regulated relegated to the fringes of public policy. U.S. Naval Intelligence Deputy Director Scott Gray described a video of a UFO, now known as a UAP, or Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, showing how brief many encounters can be. An observation may be fleeting or longer. It may be recorded or not. It may be observable by one or multiple assets. In short, there's rarely an easy answer. For example, let me share with you the first video that we have here today, which shows an observation in real time. 
There it was. That's, in many cases, that's all that a report may include. And in many other cases, we have far less than this. And that was Scott Bray, the U.S. Deputy Intelligence Director. California's Adam Schiff asked Bray if the UAPs represent unknown technology by American enemies. We're not aware of any adversary that can move an object without discernible means of propulsion. The question then becomes, in many of these cases where we don't have a discernible mean of propulsion in the data that we have, in some cases there is likely sensor artifacts that may be hiding some of that. There's certainly some degree of, of something that looks like signature management that we have seen from some of these UAP. I would simply say that there are a number of events in which we do not have an explanation, in which and there are a small handful in which there are flight characteristics or signature management that we can't explain with the data that we have. Those are obviously the ones that are of most interest to us. And uh, that's what's going on right now. It's sort of harder to understand what's happening now after hearing about it than beforehand. Uh, usually what happens when UFOs are involved, the public hearings are only 90 minutes long. Uh, other hearings were being held behind closed doors so as to not uh, clue in American enemies or other adversaries uh, to the limits of our technology, uh, what we might be able to do and how we couldn't do it. And we'll be following that story as it develops. We have a story here from WBAI's David Rosendo Marquez about the union for Starbucks being uh, organized out on Long Island. When you walk into a Starbucks on Long Island, it looks like any other. Roaring blenders, teenagers with tricked out frappuccinos. But something unusual is happening behind the scenes. I've been whispering about it with certain people for a very, very long time. Hannah Taustein is a 21-year-old Massapequa native, and she's organizing a union in the town Starbucks. She's been working part-time as a barista for the past three years, and for the most part, it's been a good job. She says the company offers her generous benefits, and she has a warm relationship with her coworkers. But she's got issues with corporate policies, especially during the pandemic. We're still very disappointed in the way that uh, coronavirus was handled by Starbucks. Plexiglass was taken down because it didn't match the aesthetic of the store very early on in the pandemic. To avoid drawing corporate attention to other Starbucks unionizing campaigns, Taustin decided to meet up at a Dunkin' Donuts. She says a lack of seniority pay is another factor that's on her mind. We see that like people who have been here for 12 years, more than that, some of us aren't getting paid as much as they should be. When I met Taustin at the Dunkin' Donuts, the mail-in vote had just finished. Over 60 Starbucks nationwide have organized, but many of those are in left-leaning college towns in liberal cities like Denver and Minneapolis. Massapequa, though, is conservative. In the 2020 election, all of its precincts went to Donald Trump. It's the last place you'd expect a high-profile union drive to succeed. But as it turns out, the political leaning of the labor movement is complicated. In the 1930s, communist and socialist parties often led militant strikes, like in Flint, Michigan. What happens when a crowd of strikers goes crazy, when destruction becomes the order of the day? But Johnny Callis, who directs the ILR Labor Action Database at Cornell University, says that radical streak wouldn't last. What happened then is after World War II, you had the anti-communist purge and McCarthyism that really expelled the best organizers that the labor movement had at the time who were communists. From the 1950s onward, the labor movement grew more conservative. 
In the Massapequa and surrounding areas, the right-leaning police union is now one of the strongest. But in recent years, the left-wing presence in labor organizing has begun to return nationally. Well, if you consider employees partners, you don't break their efforts to form a union. You treat them with respect. Today, only about 10% of American workers belong to a union. Such small numbers can be a challenge for organizers in conservative spots like Massapequa. The question really is, can you create a mass movement of workers from different political and especially ideological backgrounds? At least on Long Island, building a movement might not be as hard as you'd think. The island has a relatively strong union presence and has for decades. Starbucks didn't respond to a request for comment about concerns from labor organizers in time for air. But it's organizing around those bread-and-butter economic concerns that may also help workers cooperate across the partisan divide. Rob Terracini is with the Teachers Union in Comac, another Long Island town. He's a registered Republican who considers himself a moderate. With my positions, I'm in a lot of discussions regarding, you know, policies and contractual issues, and we, we don't really ever discuss the political side of it. He says getting better pay and benefits is the real focus. Job protections are important for everybody, making sure that the workplace is safe and has good wages, good health care. And back in Massapequa, Starbucks organizer Hannah Taustein says the same is true. I was honestly expecting the schism to be between liberal and conservative, but it ended up not being like that at all. And that strategy of focusing on the issues paid off big time. Massapequa Starbucks became the first unionized shop on Long Island. David Marquez, WBAI News, New York. Thanks, David. And the director of operations at a West Alabama Women's Care Center in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, is Robin Marty. She's also author of the book, Handbook for a Post-Row America from Seven Stories Press, available as a free download. Marty spoke with WBAI earlier today. She says we aren't exaggerating when we say the legality of abortion is a moment-by-moment thing out there. Second version of the book is a series of 10 chapters, and each chapter takes a different approach to how to prepare for keeping abortion accessible, even if it becomes illegal. There are chapters how to perform your own abortion, for instance, by using medications that you can get on the Internet, by using herbal methods, even using techniques like menstrual extraction or the using manual vacuum aspiration, which is something that people do by hand in third world countries right now where abortion is hard to access. Another section of it is about deciding how to protect yourself from any potential surveillance if you are a person who is either going to do or obtain an abortion in a state where this becomes illegal. This is especially important for people who are black and brown, who are far more likely to be persecuted or investigated if they have any sort of complication that puts them into a hospital. There's a section that is about how to protect one's privacy if they go seeking out abortion services online. Many people right now we see are trying to access funding help or abortion pills or other assistance via Facebook, Reddit, Twitter. And so it's sections about how to protect yourself from either being identified if you choose to not identify yourself, how to create new accounts in order to make sure that nobody can get background information, how to lock down all of your profiles to make sure somebody doesn't see you and decide to tell your family what you're doing. Then there's another one that is about civil disobedience and what 
kind of actions a person is willing to take in order to make sure that people can still get abortion. So mm-hmm. each chapter has different approaches to how to keep abortion as accessible as possible, either through legal channels, less than legal channels, and provides information to make sure that a person can pick the thing that they are most comfortable with in order to take some sort of action. How do people get your book? You can order my book at any independent bookstore. It's also available on Amazon. You just have to look for a new handbook for a post-Roe America. Do you feel that street action, political mass action can in any way influence the American democratic system to counter what the right is doing? Or do you think that this country is just too far gone for that? Street action matters. Street action has to be something that people put their own personal values into. It has to be something that happens repeatedly rather than one large month, a march, a million people. We need action over and over and over again. But we also have to recognize that elections aren't going to save us. In 2009, we had the White House, we had a veto-proof Senate and a House majority, and still ended up with an Obamacare that used abortion as a bargaining chip in order to get it to pass. Abortion has always been a bargaining chip for the Democratic Party, and we can't let that happen anymore. Robin Marty, Director of Operations at West Alabama Women's Center in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. We dearly hope... Women's choice doesn't come down to underground means of accessing health care. And that's some of the news for Tuesday, May 17, 2022. The news producer, Linda Perry, our engineers, Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.